Well, good afternoon. I always have to always have to adjust my thinking since this is at noon. I've been saying good morning for three hours or four hours, and now I got to remember to say um, good afternoon to be proper. We I know I know, but we are where two or three are gathered. So Jesus has got like a double crowd here. So that's the way I look at it. Um, Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get started. Thank you, God, as always, for this opportunity to continue in the journey of now the New Testament and of your word to us. And Casey was talking this past week at Montreat about the story of Scripture and to focus on telling that story rather than just reading it. So by the time we have here today, God, may we uh, focus on listening to your story so we can better tell it to those who need to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the... F- yes, Cookie. I would say probably so. I think I think in some conversations we had that she does have some theater background for sure. So yeah, she was, um, yeah, that was great. I'm trying to, like I said, I'm trying to think about how we can employ some of those tactics in in our I worship. I want you to learn to do the begots. The the begots. Be- oh yeah, yeah, right. I'm not gonna with the beginning of Matthew. <laughs> Holy smokes, the amount of time she put into that. Right. Woo, that was crazy. Um, so today we are kind of wrapping up the Gospels, the first thing. So a lot of this will be kind of review, but we're going to be setting them side by side, a, a bunch of stuff about the four Gospels, so you can see a little clearer kind of what all the different things are. Then we're going to talk a little bit about the quest for the historical Jesus. Um, there's been a lot of scientific scholarship over really in the 20th century that was trying to get to the person, the human being of Jesus Christ. We, you know, there's lots of people believe all kinds of stuff about him, but what can we discern about the actual person? And then we're going to do a very quick introduction of Acts, kind of make that transition. So that's on our, that's on our agenda for today. Um, so here are some of the events that are covered by all four Gospels, um, just in case you needed another synopsis. John's baptizing work is mentioned in one form or another. Uh, feeding the multitudes. And, and I, I say multitudes rather than 5,000 because one of them, I can't remember which one, says 4,000. So, you know, feeding a lot of people. Jesus' assault on the money changer in the temple, that is referred to. There's one gospel that really goes into detail about it, and it's evading me right now, but it's mentioned in all four. Jesus hearing before the Jewish authorities, Jesus hearing before Pilate, Jesus' crucifixion, and the empty tomb. Uh, one of the things that's not on it is the resurrection, because which gospel really doesn't, in its original form at least, Mark. Mark, right, didn't mention that. But they all talk about an empty tomb being there on, on the Easter Sunday morning. Okay, so those are just all the things that are covered by all the four gospels. Um, which means there's a lot that aren't, and that's the whole beauty uh, of the Gospels is that they have their own take on Jesus. So who wrote each of the Gospels? And this is the identity that the writer gives it. So John Mark of Jerusalem is the person that wrote Mark. Matthew wrote Matthew. Um, Luke was written by Luke, who was a physician and a companion of Jesus, um, and also wrote Acts. We've talked about that before. And then John, son of Zebedee, wrote the Gospel of John. Now, keep in mind, this is the way that the person who wrote it identifies, chooses to identify themselves as the writer. We've talked about the fact that these Gospels are written pretty far out, particularly John, so it probably was not a actual follower of Jesus, but, but the writer telling the story of Jesus presents himself in that manner. It's important to also know whom the Gospels were written for because they were written to particular communities which helped form the message that they were trying to convey. Mark was written to a mostly Gentile community, people who were new to their faith, and we know about the persecutions that were happening in the Roman Empire and, and the immediacy of that, and that's why the word immediate is in there a lot. Matthew was written to Jewish people who were educated, and we've talked before about how it was written sort of as a textbook. Luke was written to a Gentile community from people that were pretty well off. They were in urban areas, 
And again, Luke's message was about encouraging those wealthy urbanite Gentiles to serve and to engage uh, the marginalized and the oppressed. And then John's kind of mixed bag, some Jews, some Gentiles. But those were the audiences to, to whom they were written. When was it written? Again, we've sort of talked about this. Mark was the first. Matthew and Luke around the same time, borrowing from Mark and Q. I still have not yet found my Q book. I don't know where I put that thing. I put it in a bag, and I don't know where that bag is. And then John around the turn of the first century. Why was it written? Um, Mark was written for encouragement purposes to these Jews who were undergoing trials uh, and, and trying to uh, encourage them to say that, you know, you're going to be able to make it. Matthew was written to teach a community with internal divisions and different ways of understanding Jesus, as certainly happens today. So it was a teaching document. Luke was written, as I said before, to challenge these wealthy urbanites to put their faith into practice, to live it out. And John was written to kind of coalesce to strengthen this group that had been ostracized from the Jewish community and was sort of trying to find its place in the world. So encourage, teach, challenge, and strengthen. I, I find those very brief ways really helpful in understanding what each gospel, how each got what each gospel was written for, and how I need to be, I need to be aware of that when I'm reading it. In each gospel, what are some of the major actions that Jesus does? We talked about Mark, a lot of the miracles. Miracles are very prominent in Mark, and this contention with religious authorities. Okay, um, Matthew was about teaching disciples and about uh, connecting that faith to the Hebrew Bible and the traditions uh, and speaking out against religious hypocrisy. Luke was about tending to and speaking out for the oppressed people. So we find Jesus in there. We find the parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the big banquet table where, where nobody of prominence wants to come. So Jesus sends out or, or the person sends out people to invite um, you know, those who wouldn't be invited. And then John is, uh, the Jesus and John is speaking God's words, doing God's works, and revealing God to all. Okay, so that's a little bit of kind of the flavor we get of Jesus in each of those Gospels. I cannot remember where I got this image from, but since we are in a church building, and since building is, always seems to be prominent on Trinity Minds, um, because we're taking care of it, and we got a lot of it. I, I, I've, I find this sort of understanding of each of the Gospels as a part of a church building uh, helpful. Uh, Mark is the darkened sanctuary of the church building. Why is it darkened? What we know about the disciples as depicted in the Gospel of Mark? Do they, do they get what Jesus is doing? No. No, they don't see it. Hence darkened, right, for that image, okay? Yeah, nobody gets it. Nobody kind of understands. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's sort of a darkened sanctuary, if you will. Matthew is the educational building. <laughs> Of the church, why is it the educational building? Focusing on kind of teaching, exactly, all about studying Jesus's teachings. All right. Luke is the fellowship hall. Why would Luke be the fellowship hall? Emphasizes community. Right. A lot of eating and drinking with Jesus and gathering around the table together, that's where a lot of the good stuff in Luke sort of takes place. And, and in, in, in the fellowship hall, you're sitting down with people who are like you and sitting down with people who are not like you, and that's another thing that Luke is trying to do is to you know, emphasize that because the focus is on the meal, 
That's what brings the different people together. And Jen, John is a house church. So probably not surprisingly, John is not on the campus. <laughs> John's down the street a little bit in a house church um, because the focus is sort of on this intimate engaging of this preeminent Jesus that comes down. And if, you, if you've ever been part of a house church or have friends who've been part of a house church, it's a whole different way of being church. And John is a whole different way of being a gospel. So I just found that, I just found that kind of a helpful um, way of understanding the four Gospels. Okay? All right. So any questions about the four Gospels, speak now or forever hold your peace. That's not true. We'll always answer questions. But you feel like you got the Gospels all down pat now? Working on it. Working on it? Very good. All right. Let's move on then to sort of this quest for the historical Jesus. Um, we have talked before about how the gospel writers, they are not written to be biographies. They are written to tell a story of a community of faith that was existing at the time that the person who wrote it wrote it. Um, we can get a little bit about the person, information about the actual person, Jesus, from the gospels. Um, but, but ultimately, the Gospels are what the word is, good news, and so they're not intended to be historical writings. All right, There's very little information elsewhere about Jesus the person. We just don't know a whole lot about him. Um, there have been a few people down through the years who have done as much scholarship work on they can. One was a man named Josephus. Josephus, he was a Jewish historian, historian, who lived around the time that the gospel writers were doing their thing. So the end of the first century, um, he refers to Jesus tw- twice in a writing of his called the Antiquities of the Jews. So we have a cross reference, which in some ways is helpful because it lets us know that. Jesus was an actual person, regardless of what you believe about him. Um, whether you believe he's the son of God or whatever, we have his, an historical document that acknowledges this man Jesus in this area doing these things. Uh, and so we have confirmation about that, which is good. Um, so, but that's really the only snippet <laughs> we have during that time. Um, you know, let's move ahead many, many centuries to the Age of Enlightenment and what scholarship started trying to do around the 18th century was to begin to want to draw a distinction between the Jesus of history and, and the church doctrine about him. Um, again, just, I think, a curiosity of wanting to know more about the person of Jesus beyond what the faithful believe about Jesus. Um, Albert Schweitzer was a big part of this movement. He wrote a book in the early part of the 20th century called The Quest of the Historical Jesus. Um, and in that book, he pictures Jesus as a devoted Jew um, who wanted to change things. He wanted to upend the system and wound up being... Uh, defeated by the very system that oppressed him that he was trying to get to undo. Um, And, you know, if you look at the life of Jesus as the Gospels tell it, not through the faith lens, that's exactly what happened. There was a Jewish person, you know, who was of a lower class, who was trying to stir something up maybe with this counter message of love and that just did not fly in the Roman Empire, which is all about suppression, and ended up becoming a threat and was put to death for it. Um, so what this did was it forced scholars to look at Jesus in a, in a, in a different light. Um, it, ex- it, was, it was starting to expand people's understanding of who Jesus was beyond just what these four gospel stories tell us. Um, another scholar, Rudolf Bultmann, came. He was a German scholar in the middle of the 20th century. Um, his take on it was that the Gospels tell us and are intended to tell us, tell us much more about the history of the early church than about Jesus the person. 
And we've talked a little bit about this. We've asked questions like, who are these Gospels being written to? We need to know more about that community to understand why the writer was writing it the way he did. So we can thank Rudolf Bultmann, among others, for kind of helping us engage that part of it. Um, that they, while they are about the life of Jesus, they are really a vehicle, more of a vehicle to learn about their different parts of the early church and what their challenges were, if you will. Okay? Um, Rudolf Bultmann uh, was a person of faith as well and also said the message of Jesus, the heart of the message, the gospel is timeless. So as we're doing this deep dive into the person of Jesus and discerning that and sort of of trying to, at least from an analytical perspective, separate the person of Jesus from the gospel message of Jesus, you can hold both of those together. You don't have to choose one over the other. Okay? So, with all of that, <clears throat> there are some general scholarly agreements, I would say, about the person of Jesus, the historical person of Jesus. There's some general agreements in the scholarship world. <clears throat> There was an individual whose name was Jesus who was born around 6 to 4 BCE uh, during the reign of Herod. There's pretty much general consensus that that's the case, that he was raised in Nazareth, again, which is sort of aligns with what we know about him from the Gospels. Um, he was a son of Joseph and Mary, and he had siblings. Um, it, it surprises me um, that when I run into well-meaning people of faith that that scoff at the idea that Jesus had siblings? A, because it's mentioned in at least two Gospels very clearly, and it's not what some people say is, oh, it's like brothers as far as like, you know, Warren and I are brothers. That's, no, it, the word is actually a famil, familial connection, right? Um, but the other thing is like because people of faith sometimes believe that Jesus was born of a virgin and that therefore Joseph and Mary couldn't have actually had a Kid. I mean, that didn't preclude that, right? So it's surprising to me sometimes when people push back, some people against Jesus having siblings. Um, my hunch is that in their mind it makes Jesus more human and maybe at the expense of being divine, which I don't believe that's the case, but that's just me. Um, what we know about the person Jesus is that he was from a low social status, which again, that's reflected in the Gospels. Um, he's not born of the purple as we talked about, like Solomon back in the Old Testament class. There's general consensus that he was baptized by John the Baptist about, at about 30 years old, and that is because there is historical uh, data, uh, records of this guy named John the Baptist going around and baptizing people, and so we have confirmation that Jesus was one of those that he baptized. And also there's general agreement in the scholarly world that Jesus engaged in ministry for roughly about three years, that he was going around preaching, teaching, uh, doing good works uh, for around three years, proclaiming them an arrival of a God's kingdom on earth. There is general consensus that Jesus was a man who went from village to village um, in poverty uh, and that he hung out with the powerless and the outcasts, which again is something that's the image we get in the Gospels. That's confirmed by sort of scholarship. And in doing that, he made enemies with the rich and the powerful, with those in positions of influence. We have historical confirmation that he was arrested, tried, and condemned by the Romans and the Jewish authorities who were in some level of uh, you know, cahoots with the Romans, although we got to be really careful when we say that because the idea of Jesus being crucified by the Jews is a, is a real, real touchy subject when it comes to Jewish-Christian relations today. So we've got to be really careful about that. The Jewish leaders honestly did not have a choice because the Roman Empire was in absolute control, and they were the, the, the little that they did in this whole thing, they really had no choice in, in doing. So... That's um, the same thing that 
that they crucified Jesus. Right. So that that, that fosters a lot of anti-Semitic <coughs> yeah. thinking and, and actions. And Nazi Germany, that was... Yes. Yes. Yeah. Big. Which was interesting because the power of Nazi Germany and the rise of Hitler... Well, it was also it would it would parallel more with the power of Rome in Jesus's day than anything. So it was a great way for the powerful to kind of co-opt to sort of to sort of for them to take on. We're the weak one. We're the powerless one. We're fighting against the the real enemy, the real powerful, which is the Jews. And so yeah, so that was a way to kind of do that. And we're unfortunately seeing the same thing playing out a lot today. But, but that's what the powerful will do when it's trying to hold on to the power outside the realms of normal whatever, is they tend to put themselves in a weak position or try to cast themselves in a weak position and, and do that. So, yeah, I always, I always tell people, you can call them Romans, you can call them whatever, but it was the, the powerful and the absolute force of absolute power that killed Jesus, manifested in this particular point in time by the Roman Empire. So um, that's a key point that I think is important to have here. Uh, and then we have, we have, you know, Jesus was crucified. He was one of the many, 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 many people that the Romans crucified. I mean, Jesus did not get, this was not a special treatment. People were crucified all the time for years and years and years. And he was just one of the many. So that's what we know. So, yeah, so, Warren. So question, uh, arrested, tried, condemned, crucified. Uh, from Roman records or from Jewish records at the time? I don't know. Um, uh, I'm sure the Romans would keep track of, I mean, it's odd thing to keep track of, you know, but these people were crucified. But, uh, but also just historians of that era that weren't tied to the Jewish faith or the Roman Empire, but just confirmation from a host of different sources that there seems to be this and not like every single one of those sources, but just we've got X number of sources here that confirm this. We got X number of sources that confirm this, and so this is just sort of general agreements. Okay. So, just just yeah, there. yeah, yeah. Okay. So you know, there, 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 there are people who don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and but then there are people who don't believe that Jesus even existed. And the the response to that is, if you don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, that is one hundred percent a matter of faith, and that is your decision. Um, but you will have a hard time making the case unless you adopt a fake news strategy um, that Jesus is that Jesus didn't even exist as a person because there's a lot enough evidence to say that's what happened. Okay. All right. My favorite part of this little segment is what did Jesus look like? Some 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 of these pictures here. Tell me some common themes you see in these pictures. Beard. Beard. Long hair. Long hair. Dark. Dark hair. Dark hair. But not necessarily dark skin. Not dark skin. Pretty white. Um, the one on the upper right with the crown of thorns is um, it's from the Jesus of Nazareth movie that NBC put out years ago, and they used to show every Saturday night before Easter. I don't think they show it anymore. Actually, I thought it was one of the better Jesus movies as far as merging together the Gospels in a way that make the most sense. And the everybody in the movie was dark-skinned and whatever, and... They spoke with a British accent, but 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 they looked the part. But but for whatever reason, they chose. And he was a great actor. I can't remember his name right now, but but they chose to make him like the palest of the pale skin and these stark blue eyes as a way of almost setting him apart from the others. So I get, in a sense, the movie movement of that, like the act, the, like the the, the 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 theatrical dramatic of setting him apart kind of thing, but. It did some damage because he's not like that. So, um, let's see. Oh, no. Well, 
Hold on to that thought, literally. Um, but this is a cool video um, of some scholarship that was done, some really fascinating scholarship that was done, maybe not quite 10 years ago, to try, I mean, actually using a, a human male skull from that era and what they knew, what scientists told us about how dense skin and bones and muscles were on a first century Palestinian person uh, to recreate um, the, the fa- what, what the face of Jesus would probably look like. It's a great video. You get about three minutes in and then it stops very suddenly at which point you're prompted that you can purchase a whole hour and a half episode for one ninety nine. <laughs> So I almost didn't show it because I was so ticked off that they did that. But um, but we're gonna we're gonna kind of piece it together. We'll be we'll be fine. Um, yeah, I got right here. So Professor Israel Herskovitz meets with forensic artist Victoria Lywood to begin reconstructing the Galilean man's face. Herskovitz points out the unique characteristics of the skull. Look at the orbit, they are very small and often not large, square-shaped and not rounded. Those are all important morphological features, which again tells you that you deal with what we call Eastern Mediterranean uh, population, very much like the people who are living in this area today. Israel, could you tell me what this man would look like as far as hair color? Can you suggest something as eye color or skin tone? What you need to imagine is Today's Mediterranean people with uh, dark hair, slightly curly, uh, brown eyes, light brown skin, a lot of wrinkles probably on the face because uh-huh. they stayed outside in the sun for a long period of time every day. Oh, you didn't tell me how old he is. Determining age just by looking at the skull is quite difficult. Yes. But I would say that roughly that this individual was around 40. That's it. Lywood gets to work. Using measurements compiled from CT scans of living subjects with the same ethnic origin as our Galilean man, she meticulously glues corresponding tissue depth markers on the skull. Well, I'm just putting the marker over here on his eyebrow. These tell her how thick and thin the tissue needs to be in specific places across the skull. temporal bone on your skull. You can feel it in your head and in your jaw. Now what it's going to do when I put in the next muscle on the mandible, the two join up and this is how you open and close your mouth. But I mean there's no way that we can put every muscle on. There's no way that we can put every fat globule on. So what we're doing are putting in the main muscles. Now what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to work around these tissue depth markers because I want to keep them there for reference and they will eventually be covered up and I'm going to leave most of them show through right till I get to the last point so that I know where I am on the face. The most difficult area is the mouth. And it's going to be particularly difficult with this mouth knowing that there's an overbite here that I have to deal with. There's no lips here yet. There's an opening for them. We reach this particular stage that I call the Homer Simpson stage. In Boston, forensic artist Greg Mahoney runs a parallel but higher tech process. He's working with a powerful computer program. Will his man from Galilee look similar to Lywood's? And then <laughs> buy our buy our buy our episode and you can get all the answers you ever want. Um, So if you're listening online, you can go to the link to get it. So the end of the result, after all the work, is this is what they came up with. That's the face of Jesus, as best we can determine. 
So again, if you're listening online or a podcast, you're going to have to go look it out because I'm sure this is probably driving you nuts. Um, but you know, obviously the skin's a lot darker. The nose is a lot wider, lips a little bigger. The hair is darker, curlier. I mean, that's, that's what we're looking at. Um, there's more of a side profile of him. So there, in some, in some faith traditions, African-American church traditions, you see Jesus pictured as a, a man of color. Um, and a lot of times people think that that is making a statement of some sort, when in fact, that is a whole lot more accurate than the ones that we tend to see and think of in our heads, right? Short hair, not long hair kind of a thing. I mean, all that. Thoughts, comments? How many people would have been able to follow? And how many Americans? Oh, yeah. If he walked down the street? Would have been able to follow that Jesus. Yeah, this guy walked they, down. They've, they've made him acceptable. Right. Yeah, yeah. Literally, they've whitewashed him. Mm-hmm. Right. But if this guy were walking down Providence Road, come follow me. You would be wary. I mean, probably, yeah. So my my thoughts, Steve, are shorter hair because it's easier to deal with in the warm climate, maybe. Uh, and the beard, you know, doesn't have the full groomed, coiffed beard. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe genetics. You know, some people who grow a beard, it, they describe it as, you know, as, uh, oh, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, there's just like holes and splotches, and it's not a full beard. But right. Our Jesus has a full beard, and it's groomed, and it's long and thick. And right. So right. Pretty, pretty interesting. I think just, just important to keep in mind, as we're living out our Christian faith in 21st century North America, um, that, that when we say we follow a first century Palestinian Jew, this is, this is, this is what, this is the visual, the actual visual depiction of that. So, food for thought. <clears throat> All right. With that, we move into the book of Acts. And in the rest of the class time we have today, we're probably going to finish a little on the early side, but in the rest of the time, we are really going to do a, um, uh, just a, a, a quick synopsis of it. We'll dig into more of the uh, meat of the stuff next week. Um, so we've talked previously about the fact that Luke's Acts is a part one and a part two. Um, Jesus' life being Luke, and then the early church uh, being Acts. Um, Acts gives us the best um, idea of anything that we have in our New Testament about how things went from Jesus doing his thing to the, the growing spreading of the church and some of the basic movements of that, some of the highlights and the lowlights of that kind of thing. Again, like all, like the Gospels, it is a snapshot of a particular thing. It's not trying to be expansive. It's not a full-on history. Um, but we see some of the high marks and some of the critical intersections and junctures when the church, as we know it today, which was, again, still back then, sort of a new movement in the Jewish faith, when it could have gone sideways, gone off the rails, and instead it, it didn't. So we see some of those key intersection points uh, in here. Um, and and as, as, I, as it says here, it, it really focuses at the start of the book, we are talking about it being that offshoot of the Jewish faith where all of the people, for the most part, are Jewish people who are just identifying Jesus as this long way to Messiah, that a, lot, a whole other host of Jewish people are still like, he's a good guy, but no, he's not our Savior. But they wouldn't have said Savior anyway, they would have said Messiah. Um, from that to at the end of Acts, we see how it has spread way outside of Palestine into the Gentile world and is becoming more and more and more a Gentile uh, faith. All right? 
Um, the way that the writer of Luke acts, and a lot of times you'll hear people, scholars will say the writer of Luke acts, which means both. The way that the writer of Luke acts depicts it, all of this as being exactly what God wants to have happen. Um, which is interesting because the Gospels do not necessarily depict a Jesus who wanted to start a whole new religion, right? Um, that's, that's not really, as best we can tell, what Jesus was focused on. But the writer of Luke-Acts, when you get to the second part of his story in Acts in particular, this is exactly what God wanted to have happen all along. Taking what Jesus, picking up where Jesus left off and starting a new religion. Um, we really don't get a lot about Jesus' disciples. It's important to remember that they, for the most part, were still very active in this time frame. They were going out. They were starting churches. They were doing lots of things. But as far as the narrative that we get, it focuses primarily on Peter, who was, of course, Jesus' disciple, so that's one, and then Saul, who became Paul after his conversion. Um, and really, Paul, but even both of those, you're following their streams, their steps, primarily. But it's important to remember that the disciples, all the other disciples, or most of them at least, are doing things at the same time too. So we're zeroing in on these two guys. Um, this is a this is this picks up on an important theme that Luke, the book of Luke, presents. If you remember was it was writing to these wealthy urbanites wanting them to embody the life of Jesus, care for the poor, and in particular to show that you could be a follower of Jesus and also be a good citizen of Rome. That's not something that all the Gospels would claim. But Luke did. We find that continued in Acts. In fact, we find in Acts Paul, and we'll talk about it, who uses the fact that he is a Roman citizen as a he plays that card a few times, gets him out of jail once. Um, it gets him access to places where he can do the work of the Lord, if you will. So the overarching, one of the overarching things in Luke Acts is you can follow Jesus, you can be a good Christian in the church, and also be a good citizen of Rome. Um, and again, not all Gospels and not all Followers of Jesus and Christians would have necessarily claimed that, but Luke Acts does. Um, the, the, the flow that we see in not just Acts, the geographical flow that we see in not just Acts, but in all the letters, because they were mostly written by Paul or contemporaries of his, is the movement of the faith from Palestine, I'll show you a map in a second, to Asia Minor and Greece. Um, so this right here, sort of, so here's Palestine, this is where Jesus is. So when we read Acts, and like I said, when we read the letters, it's mainly talking about the growth of Christianity to the northwest, to Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, to Greece, to Rome a little bit as well on the other side. Um, but like with the people that it follows, there are plenty of other things going on. There's movement down into the northern Africa. There's movement back over this way. There's movement back over this way. So I even have to remind myself of that because what I read is all about this movement. But it is going out in all directions uh, during this time period as well. Just again, to keep in mind about kind of where we are in the whole picture. All right. The overarching theme of Acts, if someone asks you to summarize it, to give your, as the doors are closing, elevator speech, <laughs> right? You got like three or four seconds. The overarching story of Acts is God's Spirit operating in human history. Which makes sense when you think about how the book of Acts doesn't quite start, but pretty early on, what happens? Acts 2. The Holy Spirit. Right, So it sets it, it sets it up right from the beginning. And if you remember in Luke, we talked a little bit about the Spirit, even though the Holy Spirit, I mean, was a thing, but not a prominent thing when Jesus was alive, because Jesus was a thing. But, but we see that motif, God's Spirit 
active and moving and operating in human history is a, is the summer is really the summarizing statement of Acts. Um, as part of that, the growth of the church, that sort of northwestward expansion, is guided by the Spirit, and it is what God wants to have happen. Um, and even a little bit of hearkening back to this this idea of this new Jerusalem, um, the restoration of Israel through Je- the Jewish disciples of Jesus. So we, we have, as this church is growing into a Gentile church, it's not totally forgetting where it comes from. Kind of way to look at it. Okay? All right, so once again, sort of a general outline of Acts. You don't need to jot this down unless you really want to, but I'm going to move probably too fast for you to do it. Um, but um, there's a lot packed into the book of Acts. There's a lot. Um, you got just a general quick intro, and then we get Jesus' ascension. Because in order for the disciples to do what they have to do, Jesus has to not be around <laughs> at some point to help them do it. It's got to be all on them. So we have the story of Jesus' ascension uh, into the Bible, um, which marks uh, the third time that someone in the Bible does not die, but is also not living forever on earth. Do you know the other two? Ezekiel. Hmm? Ezekiel. Ezekiel. And then the other was some eunuch early on in the Old Testament. I can't remember the name right now, but yeah. So um, we get a little bit there in the end of the uh, uh, first chapter and into the second of uh, the founding of the Jerusalem church, establishing a core community of followers of Jesus within the Jewish faith in Jerusalem. And then, of course, Pentecost. We'll talk about that in more depth as well. Chapters 3, 4, 5 really focus on Peter and, and some of the other disciples, but mostly uh, yeah, going, you know, sort of doing things. But again, it's only like three chapters that it really focuses on it. We entered into sort of uh, a recounting in the next three chapters of uh, how the Jewish Christians were persecuted. Um, and then sort of the beginning of the reaching outside of Jerusalem and the real uh, fruits of their labors of that Pentecost event and the commission to go starts to really show up there. Um, chapter 9 is key because that's when this Paul guy comes into the picture who, again, we'll talk about the fact that he wasn't some new guy. He actually been around a while. He was just a persecutor of the church and he experienced a conversion he became, as Acts depicts it, Christianity's greatest champion. Um, if we were reading other accounts from other books, they might dispute that, that. They might say that Peter and others were doing just as powerful work. But Paul gets a lot of press time for lots of reasons. He wrote a lot of letters, and we have those. And so in our minds, he's a very, very prominent figure in the New Testament. And again, this real intention to begin expanding the reach of the church outside of Jerusalem into Gentile areas. We get Paul's first missionary journey and the Jerusalem Council, which was a critical, critical decision that the early church leaders made that could have, had they chosen the other choice, could have killed Christianity within 50 years of that time. Thankfully, they made the other decision. We'll talk about that later. Um, Paul's second second missionary journey is in chapter 16, 17, and 18. Paul's third missionary journey is chapters 18, 19, and 20. Uh, And then Paul gets arrested and imprisoned in Jerusalem. Uh, That's a long segment there. Uh, Near the end of the letter, the letter really wraps up with Paul's journey to Rome, which again, if you think about Part of the purpose of Luke-Acts is to talk about how you can be a good follower of Jesus and a good citizen, all right? It makes perfect sense that that journey would probably lead you to where? To Rome, right. So even the movement of the book and the way that it climaxes at the end is sort of undergirding that message that the writer is real keen on wanting to get across to us. Okay? 
So, if you got a Bible, open up chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to just start there a little bit. So, part of the clue that we have on a few on, on the fact that this is a uh, part two of a two-part series is the very first four words of the book of Acts. In the first book, right? We have that reference made right there. In the first book, Theophilus, I read about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. And he sort of gives a very quick summary of the Gospel of Luke. Um, who is this Theophilus? Well, we don't really know, other than he is someone that Luke is, or the writer of Luke Acts is writing Acts 2. We don't really know anything about Theophilus. We know the name means dear to God. It is possible that this name is not the name of an actual person. I mean, it probably was the name of some person, but the letter was not written to some specific person named Theophilus. It could be that Theophilus is just a way that the writer is personalizing this letter that's intended to go to everybody or whoever wants to read it. Um, so in the first chapter, we get Jesus ascending into heaven, which of course means that Jesus never dies, like for real, right? Which was a way of um, undergirding the idea of the second coming, because Jesus is not going to have to be somehow made alive from the grave. He's somewhere up there. I mean, literally, the spatialness of it. I mean, heaven, people think, is up in there, but there's nothing other than just habit over thousands of years that said that heaven is up, right? But literally, Jesus ascends until he can't be seen anymore. So he's up somewhere, which makes it super easy at some point in time for Jesus to just come right back down, right? So that's part of the thinking behind this ascension telling of Jesus, um, is that it, it fostered the idea that Jesus returns. Um, verse 21, just skipping through some notable kinds of things here. Um, they elected, and I love this for Presbyterians, um, because <clears throat> it probably was a majority vote. I'm sure there are minutes somewhere for it. But the election of this guy named Matthias to replace Judas, um, because Judas had taken his life uh, in the first book, in the first part of the story. And there's this sense um, that it was important to remain the number 12, um, which a lot of scholars think is a way of not a nod back to this, this Old Testament faith and the 12 tribes of Israel, that, that there's, there's, a, there's a desire by the writer of Luke Acts to sort of maintain that significance. Okay? So we get to chapter 2, which is an important event in the life of the church. Um, and we know this story well. I think I preached on it like a month ago or something like that. Um, the spirit appears as this violent wind. Everyone was gathered all in one place. So there's a physical, it is, it is, it is you, you can imagine this almost like a convention mentality, right? Everybody that needs to be in the room is in the room, sort of a deal. Um, spirit comes as this violent wind, their tongues of fire, they rest on the head. Um, so this has understandably sparked some. Uh, nifty artistic renderings. <clears throat> so here's, <clears throat> here's kind of one rendering of it. Um, you have these tongues of fire. Um, this is another one. Uh, you have the dove up top in the light, if you can sort of see it. Um, I don't know how easy it is to see some of these things. You have people kind of floating around in that one. You know, something amazing was happening. The visualness has sparked 
a lot of imagination and curiosity down through the centuries. Um, this sort of event that, that happened as, as the writer of Luke X tells it. In verse 4, it says that the disciples were given the ability to speak in other languages. And there's a long list of languages if you look at it. Um, look at verse 7. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native tongue, Parthians, Medes, Elmites, and Respondents, and Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia? You all know the drill here. This is the verse that if a church member gets asked to read it on Pentecost Sunday, they panic. Um, full disclosure, ministers panic on, Palm, on Pentecost Sunday to read it too. Um, the interesting thing about this list is, I mean, the, the, the point, the, well, the interesting thing about this list is, and I don't know the exact ones, but some of the ones later in this list, <clears throat> through like 11, a few of these represent peoples and or dialects that at the time this would have happened were no longer in existence. Um, so the whole point of listing these things out specifically is to highlight that the people were all of a sudden able to speak actual languages in an instant. And um, by listing them out, you are highlighting that fact. Because to have said and all the people just all of a sudden speaking all these different languages and just one of those tour, you're, miss, you're kind of missing the point. But this dialogue of how is it that we're hearing in all these languages, da 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 you're drawing attention to all these different languages. The fact that a couple of them are dialects that weren't even used at the time that this would have happened seems to highlight the fact that this beginning of the church is a timeless kind of a thing. It is a moment in time, but it is sort of with a nod looking backward and looking forward. You know what I'm saying? So it's sort of this cosmic understanding of things. Um, what is also really important to understand here is that they are actual languages. Because a lot of times what we think of when we think of Acts 2 and the Pentecost is people speaking in tongues. Um, there is no mention of speaking in tongues in Acts 2. Uh, in more Pentecostal churches, you have what's called glossolalia. Um, and that is not what Pentecost is. Glossolalia is this sort of very intense spiritual experience where a person is, in that moment, so connected to the Holy Spirit and therefore to God that they start speaking in um, kind of babbling, right? Um, that the thinking is, is it is a language, a unique language between that person and God in that moment. Um, that's kind of the understanding of what it is. And so uh, it's still practiced in some Pentecostal charismatic churches today. And you can go online and Google videos and see stuff like that. Um, this is not an indictment of that experience. I've never experienced it myself. I, enough people have experienced it that I'm not in a position to say it's malarkey. But the, the larger point is that is not what is happening in Acts 2. Okay? Um, so, yeah, these are actual languages that mentions in verse 6, and we kind of talked about that. Uh, and we also talked about the purpose of the disciples given the ability to speak in different languages is a very practical one. It's so they can go to that place and tell them about Jesus. Because I may want to really go tell the people, or I may be called to go tell uh, the people in India about Jesus. But if I go over there with my English and my tiny, tiny, ever so tiny bit of Japanese that I can still remember from when I lived there four months, uh, for four months when I was in college, I, I'm not going to be able to do anything for anybody unless I whip out Google Translate, which they didn't have that. So it's a very practical gift that the Spirit gives these disciples, is the ability to suddenly speak fluently a language they didn't know moments before, which I would have loved to have had that in Latin class. 
when I took Latin for four and a half years. So, God has given the disciples the ability to preach gospel in every known language, um, highlights the universality of Christian mission. It is not intended to remain specifically Jewish thing. So it is important in the larger message of Luke-Acts that on this time when the Spirit comes, the gift that the thing that the Spirit does for the people gives, gives them the ability to speak in all these different languages because if the Spirit just wanted it to remain a Jewish thing, that they wouldn't have, he would have given them gift baskets or something. I don't know. But giving them languages was by design to go out. All right? Um, there's this wonderful line in here about people are pretty amazed and the person says, how can they speak languages? And other people said they have had too much of something. Uh, they had too much wine, right? And then Peter uses this time to go into this long sermon. Um, and, you know, I mean, long time, which is basically recounting the story of Jesus, particularly as Luke tells it, not surprisingly. Um, if you skip ahead to 242, chapter 242, or 41, <clears throat> kind of in the immediate aftermath of the sermon, this is every preacher's dream. So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. That's a new member Sunday. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Um, verse 44 all who believed were together, that's key, had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute their proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, they spent much time together in the temple, breaking bread at home, ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So there is this sense that because of the arrival of the Spirit and because not because of Peter's sermon, but in light of Peter's sermon inspired by the coming of the Spirit, that the community just starts taking off. All right? So, other events, just a quick overview. Uh, there's confrontations between the apostles and Jewish authorities, not surprisingly, um, because they were growing into this new thing that wasn't always within the confines of the Jewish faith. Um, we talked in there about uh, the church holding things in common, and there's a little bit of that in chapters 4 and 5. Um, we talk about Stephen, the first Christian martyr, at least that gets the recognition. There were probably many Christian martyrs before, but Stephen is the one that gets a lot of that recognition. We'll talk about all this later. Um, and then chapter 8, we begin to see, and this is building up to Paul, we begin to see that Christianity is now moving into Gentile areas. Quick synopsis of Saul. Um, Saul was a Pharisee. Um, so what we know about Pharisees is that they are very educated and they know the law backwards, forwards, inside out. Saul's passion, um, significant passion as Saul, was making sure that Jews follow the law. Again, like any good Pharisee. Um, because of that, he, would, um, he was pretty rough on these you know, kids that are taking things sideways. right? Um, what he would do, and how he would do this, is he would go to the synagogues. He would go to the Carolines, um, like our Caroline, and say, can I have your database? Um, and, it, and what I'd like for you to do is to mark the ones who are delinquent, which what he said specifically was mark the ones who are getting swayed too much by this Jesus of Nazareth thing. And so they would, I guess, mark them down uh, for the defectors, and then he would knock on their door and convince them otherwise. That's how he did his thing as Saul. So it was a pretty intense campaign to try and right the ship as he saw it. He's on the road to Damascus and he has this encounter with Jesus and he is blinded for three days. Uh, his life is upended. Um, and on the other side of that, and there's this wonderful narrative about Jesus 
reaching, calling um, this follower Jesus to go minister to Saul. And he's like, you've heard about this guy, right? Right? Yes, go. And so he goes and, and in that conversation, Saul essentially becomes Paul. He converts to Christianity. Ananias is the guy's name and other followers and his name is changed to Paul. So, and again, this is just a quick overview. We'll dig more into it next week. But, but it's important to know that that comes roughly in the middle of the Acts story. Um, so the way that Acts depicts it, it really is sort of pre-Paul Acts and post, pre-Paul Acts and Paul Acts of now we're going to follow Paul's narrative almost exclusively um, as because what Paul does is Paul not just becomes a Christian, but all of the fervor that Paul had to keep the faith insular and defined by the 613 laws, it is all blown wide open, and he becomes its greatest proponent in going out, Jesus, out everywhere. Forget boundaries, forget whatever, just go. I mean, that becomes the switch, that the way that Acts tells it that, that Paul makes. So we'll look at some of that more next week. All right? Any questions? Is at that time the new religion was called the way? That was, one of the, that was one of the ways that they described it. Um, Mark, I think, talks about that. Uh, calls it the way. Yeah. Yeah. The way. All right. Well, thank you all as always. Thank you. Have a great rest of the day. We'll see you.